It's easy to acknowledge LeBron James' greatness, to see how special a talent Kawhi Leonard is, the versatility of an Anthony Davis, the shooting ability, the ball handling ability, the scoring ability of a Kevin Durant, the explosiveness of Russell Westbrook, James Harden's crafty put-you-to-sleep handle. Next thing you know, he's at the free throw line or he's raising up shooting a three in your face or maybe getting a four-point play. Joel Embiid overpowering bigs, taking them to school inside and out. Ben Simmons going full court, one-man fast break. It's easy to acknowledge the talented, gifted players. I think the real challenge for most sports fans, are we too hard sometimes on, let's say, the lesser-known players? Even if you go back in the day like a guy like Kwame Brown. Were we too hard on him because he was a high draft pick, a number one pick? Are we too hard on guys like Dwight Howard today or Andrew Wiggins? The brilliance of social media is connection. The brilliance of social media is it allows everybody to not only put out their opinion, share their opinion, but to connect with others who are like-minded in their thinking and get into heated debates when they're not of the same mind, when they don't see things the same way. I don't want sports to me. Sports shouldn't be to the point where it's always personal. I think that as sports fans, we're passionate. We're passionate about our favorite teams and our favorite players. So I get that there's, there's that's understandable. And when we have conversations or disagreements or debates, being passionate, that's not a bad thing at all. It's when it gets personal within the debate or when it gets personal when you're talking about a player as if you know him or how he is away from the court. I only judge professional athletes when we're talking about their greatness as a player, as a talent. I judge them strictly on what they do on the court. And if they're active in the community, if they do things to uplift people around them, that's great. That's a beautiful thing. Still, for me, I'm going to separate that. That that might mean you might be a good man and there's nothing wrong with that. But I'm only focusing on the athlete, on the talent that you put out on the floor. When I'm judging you ultimately on your career, whether or not you're a Hall of Famer or borderline Hall of Famer, I'm not going to factor in that you might have played in the Euro League. I'm not going to factor in that you've done great community work. Although I think those things, especially the community work, is always important, maybe most important. I think when we look at players and Hall of Famers, acknowledge the career. Look at their overall resume. Look at what they were able to achieve in their era against their peers, against the very best players. This year's Hall of Fame class I thought was interesting. And I thought for sure a guy like Sidney Moncrief was deserving. A guy like Jack Sigma was deserving. I'm not the one who should say who should get in or who shouldn't get in. But I do believe that the Hall of Fame 
it should represent the very best that professional basketball has to offer. If you're not transcendent, then you're borderline transcendent. There should be something special about you, your career, your signature moments, how you made fans feel, how you made your peers feel, even your competitors. There has to be something that stands out about you. Even if you were just special, let's say you played 12 years, but you were a special talent, a special player, productive, put up numbers for five years. Were you dominant? Were you transcendent for those five years or were you just very good? I'm a Laker fan. So I remember Vlade Divac as a rookie. I remember him playing in the finals with Magic versus the Bulls. I remember him getting traded for Kobe. I remember him on the Kings being the third or fourth best player on that talented Sacramento Kings team. Vladi was a very good player. He had a long, productive career. But he's not one of the special players in NBA history. When you talk about great centers, never mind the top five or 10 or 15, he's not in the top 20, probably not even in the top 25. I think he's a very good player. And there are a lot of very good players who are not in the Hall of Fame. There's also great players, much greater than him, who are not in the Hall of Fame. His teammate, the best player on that Sacramento roster, Chris Webber, he's not in the Hall of Fame. Vladi didn't have close to the career that Chris Webber had. At some point, Hall of Fame should represent the best of the best, not the best of the best blended in with the very good. Team USA failing to medal, most people think it's a blip. I think it's a trend if you can no longer get the top tier players to commit to playing. When you look at the roster of Team USA, there are some very good players on there, but there's no one that's a transcendent talent. There's no one on the roster that's one of the top 10 or 15 players in the NBA. And In international basketball, while it's more physical, you still need shooting. And I look at the roster outside of Chris Middleton and Joe Harris, they didn't have much shooting at all. And that was another reason they struggled. And while Brooke Lopez is a giant of a man, anybody that knows his game, his skill sets and how he plays, he does most of his work on the perimeter as a pick and pop big. He's not a post player. He's not a great defender. He did well within the team concept of the Bucks, But in international play, where they feature the bigs, he got exposed defensively. And he struggled offensively. I'm looking at the top 15 players, or at least the top 15 players that most of us would agree uh, rank as the best of the best in the NBA. And when you look at LeBron, who's going to be 35, Kawhi's 29, 28, KD's 30, Harden 29, Westbrook 30, AD 26, Embiid's 25, Dame's 29, PG 13's 29, Clay's 29, Kyrie's 27, and Jimmy Bucket's 29. Now, of course, I didn't mention the Joker or Giannis because they play for their respective countries. 
But most of these guys, because they're older and they're more established, and most of them already have gold medals, they're in the process of trying to win titles. They're in the process of trying to add to their legacy. They're also in the process of building up their brands. The truth of the matter is, wearing their bodies down, not allowing themselves to rest during the summer and playing for Team USA doesn't really bode well for them in the long run. We're in the era now where stars are talking about playing 65 games instead of 82 games. If load management is a real thing, and I think it is, Kawhi proved that, don't expect LeBron to be playing for Team USA or KD or Steph or Clay. Or any of these guys. I think their mission now, like I said, is to win titles. Their mission now is to further their legacies and their brand. They've served their country. They've played in terms of basketball. They've served their country. The struggle or the concern you should have if you're a fan of Team USA is which of these young stars is going to step forward? Which of these young stars is going to be that transcendent talent who can be dominant, who can get buckets in a tight game or get a stop when a stop is needed. Kobe said the days of the dream team days of team USA blowing out other countries is over because the other countries have caught up. I disagree. I think they've caught up to the point where if we send second tier stars or just very good players, then Team USA is very beatable. But if we can still send our best and that would be the top 10 to 15 players, we're going to win. Plain and simple. It's not that close. And even though these countries play together year round and they're, they're more familiar with each other, there's a chemistry, a camaraderie. They're committed to this. Our team, our talent is just better. We don't just have a few of the best players. We have the best players. The question is, how do you incentivize older veteran players to come out and play for Team USA when they're motivated by titles? They're told to rest their bodies. They're trying to preserve their careers. That's the bigger question. Last week, I gave you my top 10 NBA perimeter defenders of all time. This week, I want to show some respect the guys that are on my honorable mention list, like Mookie Blaylock, six-time All-NBA defense, Bobby Jones, nine-time All-NBA defense, Jason Kidd, nine-time All-NBA defense, Bruce Bowen, dirty Bruce Bowen, eight-time All-NBA defense. And Draymond Green, five-time All-NBA defense. Dennis Johnson, Hall of Famer, nine-time All-NBA defense. What about Doug Christie, Tayshaun Prince, Iggy? Great defender, especially late-game situations. Timing is everything. Drew Holiday, Dirty Bev, Tony Allen. People sleep on how great a defender Tony Allen was. Six-time All-NBA defense. PG-13. Great perimeter defender, long arms, great at deflections, getting in the passing lanes. Don't sleep on what he can become still in his career. Clay Thompson, CP3, and Jimmy Butler. 
And the and when I put together this list, remember, my list is a top 10 of players I actually saw play. So I want to show respect to someone like, say, John Havlicek, someone like Clyde Frazier, who were known as great defenders. I didn't see them play. So my list are composed of guys that I actually saw play the game. I just want to so, show some respect Two guys like a Mookie Blaylock, who I actually saw Mookie Blaylock play. And as an on-ball defender, he was a beast. Mookie Blaylock would make you pick up your dribble. That's how great an on-ball defender he was. So salute to all these guys for their honorable mention. I also want to get into my top 10 six men of all time. And these are guys that I actually saw play. So again, no disrespect to Billy Cunningham or to Hondo or guys from the early, early ages within the NBA. Manu Ginobili, Kevin McHale, Michael Cooper, Ricky Pierce, Vinny Johnson, Detlef Shrimp, Tony Kukoc, Lou Williams, Iggy, of course. And then I've got a tie between Jamal Crawford and maybe to a lesser degree, Lamar Odom. These are the guys that I actually saw play, that I respect, and that I have in my top 10. Honorable mention, Jason Terry, Ben Gordon, Eddie Johnson, Bobby Jackson, Cliff Robinson, Eric Gordon, Leandro Barbosa, Robert Ory, Big Game Bob. And Bill Walton. The players that stick out the most within this list for me, Ginobili, Mikel, Cooper, Vinny Johnson, Cool Coach, Iggy, and Lamar Odom. Most of those guys, if not all, were part of teams that won multiple titles. Odom went to three finals and won two titles beside Kobe Bryant and Paul Gasol. Tony Kukoc? Three-peated with Jordan and Pippen. Vinnie Johnson, the microwave, was part of the Bad Boy Pistons back-to-back title run. And then Michael Cooper won five titles with the Showtime Lakers. Kevin McHale won three titles with Larry Bird, Robert Parrish, and company. And Manu Ginobili, he won four titles with Tim Duncan, Greg Popovich, and Tony Parker. Everybody on this list is great. Everybody in the honorable mention were special talents too. And you might even have some of these guys that I have in the honorable mention. They might be in your top 10. Remember, this is my top 10. And you're okay to disagree with me with your top 10. Just so long as you give me your top 10. In the NBA, you can be a six-year veteran and still be 24 years old. Because most guys now are coming into the league age 18 or 19 teams invest in you because of the potential of your talent, what they think you might project to be. These are my top 10 players that I think are at crossroads in their careers. Jabari Parker, Thon Maker, Gordon Haywood, Victor Oluwadipo, Aaron Gordon, Reggie Jackson, Terry Rozier, Hassan Whiteside, Chris Paul, D12, and Andrew Wiggins.
when you look at Wiggins, Gordon, and Thon Maker, along with Jabari Parker, four of those guys, or three of the four, have been in the league five years. Everybody knows the talent when you look at Wiggins' frame and his length and his athleticism. You know what he could be, what he could project to be, and what he's shown flashes of. What he hasn't shown is a tenacity to want to be the best. What he hasn't shown is consistency. When you look at Aaron Gordon, I'm not sure his upside is as high as most projected it to be. He seems to be a very good player. He seems to be the kind of player that can help a team win, but I don't think he has a future as any team's number one option. I think he still has the potential to be a perennial all-star, but not a superstar. With a guy like Thon Maker, I think Maker's still trying to find his way in the NBA. He seems like he's a 7-foot 3-and-D guy, but he doesn't really have the lateral quickness to guard out on the perimeter, and he doesn't shoot well enough from three to really have an impact. I think Thon Maker, if he's not in a gym right now, if he's not eating weights, getting up 500 or more shots a day, he's going to have a short NBA career. I know they're all... 24 and under, at least of this group, when I'm talking about Wiggins, Gordon, even Terry Rozier and Thon Maker, along with Jabari Parker, they're young. But when you've been in the league five or more years and the return on the investment the franchise has put into you hasn't been what they thought it would be, that's when franchises make trades. That's when they cut ties. That's when they move on. When you look at someone like Gordon Haywood, he's coming off a catastrophic injury. And when you have that type of injury, you're going to need a year just to get your footing back, just to find your way. I think this coming season, you're going to either find out whether or not he can establish himself or reestablish himself as an all-star caliber player, or if he's just never going to return to the form that he once had. That's what I'm looking for this coming season when I look at these players. And that includes Reggie Jackson, who I think was one of the best backup point cards at one time in the NBA. He got a big deal from the Pistons because they thought he was on the verge of becoming a star. And what they found out is he's a backup point guard. That doesn't mean that Reggie Jackson can't still have, have an impact. It just means that he has to accept who he really is, and what his true ceiling is as a basketball player. Chris Paul is a first ballot Hall of Famer, but he's still one of those players that doesn't have championship on his resume. And I still think even though at age 34, he's lost a step, I think he's still got two good years in him. I think he can still be productive. I still think he can help a team win. And ultimately, before this season is over, I don't think he's going to finish this season as a member of the Oklahoma City Thunder. When I look at D12, it's real simple. This season, this opportunity with this Laker team, he's either going to flourish and reestablish himself, or this will be his last year in the NBA. Dwight Howard has to show he wants it. That simple. He's going to give you 100%. He's going to embrace the role that they ask him to play. 
And he's going to embrace the idea that he's no longer a first, second, or third option. But he can still be a major contributor in a lesser role. Where he shines at, when he's active, when he's aggressive, he can still protect the rim. He can still rebound at a high level. And while he's not a great offensive player, LeBron can't set him up for a lob. LeBron can't get him an easy dunk or a layup. Of course he can. Same for Rondo and the other playmakers on the roster. These 10 players, I think they're all at crossroads. Even though their ages and their experience in the league vary, in some ways I think they're all in the same boat. I think this year will go a long way in determining the other side of their careers. I think Wiggins, along with Parker and Gordon, have been coasting on potential. I think teams are enamored with what they could be. But at some point, you have to come to the realization of what they actually are. That's why I think this season is a make-or-break season for the three of them in terms of teams viewing them as potential stars. You know what? Before I go on, let me just throw in a couple of honorable mentions because you know how sometimes thoughts just hit you. And in the back of my mind, while I was talking about this top 10, I still was thinking about honorable mentions for defensive players. So while they're fresh in my head, let me not disrespect and forget Joe D, Joe Dumars, great defensive player, bad boy Pistons, Dan Marley, Thunder Dan. Derek Harper, underrated, great defensive player. John Starks and Vernon Maxwell, when they were able to control their emotions and focus because they were very similar, both were terrific perimeter defenders. Nate McMillan, great defender. Rick Fox and Ron Harper both elevated their games defensively. Ron Harper reinvented himself into a terrific perimeter defender, was part of five NBA championships. I just wanted to acknowledge those guys, those players, while those names were floating around fresh in my head. On a side note, before this episode airs, Steph Curry just committed to playing for Team USA in 2020. And that's a big deal because I really thought most of the top 10 players were no longer interested in being part of that. The key, though, is it's great that Steph committed. Can he recruit? and bring in other top 10 players to be part of Team USA. And speaking of Steph, you know what? So this is a non-story, but they make it into a story because it's old news, right? Obviously, Kevin Durant has been interviewed multiple times about his time with the Warriors. And so he said that he felt like an outsider. And maybe he did. That Only he could know. If that's how he felt, then that's how he felt. He also said he didn't agree with the motion offense. He thought that sometimes it got stagnant. And then I guess Steph Curry heard, responded, and said that ultimately the motion offense, they it wasn't perfect, but they did win championships. He's 100% right. They won titles. But there were times when they broke from the motion offense and they isolated KD, and they were successful doing that as well. They had a great three-year run. And I think nobody would disagree with saying that Steph Curry, if you compare the two players, he seems to be the more settled. He seems to be most comfortable with his career and with his personal life. 
KD seems to be wanting. And what that is, only he could know. I don't even doubt that Steph was a great teammate, that he embraced the idea of bringing KD in. But he didn't bring KD in. Iguodala, Draymond, and Steph, they didn't bring KD in out of the goodness of their heart. They brought him in because they wanted to make sure that that core group, what they had established, wasn't just a one-off. Remember, they won their first title versus the Cavs, minus Kyrie, minus Love. And then when the Cavs were 100%, they lost to them in Game 7 at home. We can talk all we want about how great a shooter Steph is. No disagreement. He is the greatest shooter of all time. Clay's probably right there. If Clay's not number two, he's number three, but he's right there. And still, they went four minutes of a game seven at home scoreless. So, no, they didn't bring KD in to help him out. They brought KD in to help them out. You want to say Steph sacrificed. It takes a lot to bring in a talent like KD because he's a better player than Steph. So, yes, that was somewhat of a sacrifice. And once he brought him in, sure, on the same roster, KD and Steph basically canceled each other out in terms of MVP consideration. But bigger picture, they won two more titles together. KD won two finals MVP, and those carry a lot more weight than regular season MVPs. And when people say, well, Steph sacrificed so much, they played three years together. Steph led the Warriors in field goal attempts two of those three years. He didn't sacrifice that much. Great shooter, great teammate, he and Clay. And I think them being on the floor allowed KD to do things that he might not have been able to do in other places. On the flip side, because of what KD can do, he freed up Clay and Steph at times because he can beat anybody one-on-one, which means you would have to draw a second defender over. And that means that once the ball swings, someone is open. They helped each other out. They benefited, both of them benefited from this relationship. This wasn't one-sided. This wasn't, well, KD joined a dynasty. He didn't join a dynasty. He joined a team that had won one title and had been to two finals. With him, they won two titles. They'd been to three finals, although he was injured and only played in game five and was re-injured and is gone for the year. I think when you look back on his time with the Warriors, I think Kevin Durant should have fond memories of that time. And I like what Steph said where he said that things changed. KD had to make a decision for himself. He wished they could still play together, but he understands. Steph understands. I wish that more NBA fans would understand as well. H and I will be on tomorrow. We're going to do a show on Sports Illustrated's All-NBA Decade Team, first, second, and third. And we're going to do something on Sports Illustrated's top 100 players of 2020. Appreciate the support. It's the Cypher. Next time. 